Today on Blue 58, there was a bunch of Packers-related news breaking all at once on Wednesday. Let's try to sort through it, then explain why you don't need to get hung up on scheme differences as much as you used to. Then, are there too many rules in the NFL? Well, yeah, definitely. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got a lot to cover, and I'm glad. We've got a lot of good feedback over the last couple episodes when we've done a lot of stuff, a lot of topics, uh, maybe shorter. So that's something maybe we'll try to do a little bit more of while still diving deeper when we can, especially right now when there's not always all that much news. Maybe we just do a bunch of shorter topics instead of trying to stretch stuff out. Uh, more than we have to. Don't have to stretch anything this time, though, because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world of the Packers. Got some honest-to-goodness Packers news this week, at least three significant news stories and a couple other developments we should we should be talking about. First and foremost, A.J. Dillon has signed his rookie contract. Exciting, but not surprising. Uh, we knew that was going to happen. Uh, we knew pretty much how much it was going to be, and it turned out to be worth exactly as much as we thought. So, A perfunctory deal there for A.J. Dillon, but nonetheless good to have another Packers draft pick under contract. Later in the very same day, though, we got news that Jordan Love has signed his rookie deal as well, and it was fully guaranteed. That is the first time it's happened for the 26th pick. In 2019, all players selected 24th or earlier had their contracts fully guaranteed, so not a huge surprise. And I don't know if it necessarily means anything, but could be seen as a vote of confidence. Hey, we're not going to try to get out of your deal before the four years are up and then the fifth year option, whatever. I don't know if I'd read into it too much. For his money, no pun intended, Jason Fitzgerald, who runs the excellent website overthecap.com, says on Twitter, this is not really a big deal. Quote, last year, the 24th pick got a fully guaranteed deal, which typically meant that this year, 25 would get one and 26 the next. So rather than haggle over 1.6% of the contract being non-guaranteed, they just did the full guarantee since it's a quarterback, end quote. On top of all that, rookie contracts are small enough that dead cap stuff really isn't going to be that big of a deal anyway. And unless he is just beyond the pale in terms of bad quarterback play, you're not going to move on early from your first rounder anyway. So probably won't be that big of a deal. It's fully guaranteed, though, Jordan Love is under contract. Love him or hate him, you've got him. And he is under contract. Also breaking on Wednesday, the preseason has essentially been cut in half. Not essentially, it has been cut in half. We're down to two games. One home and one road game. Not exactly clear how this is going to shake out Packers-wise yet, since games two and three, they had a home road split anyway. This is bad news for anybody who likes preseason football which means that this is good news for pretty much everybody but me. I actually like watching preseason football. I'm a bit of a sadist that way, I guess, but it's interesting to me. I like seeing little snippets of guys before they are the guys that we know and love on Sundays. I like seeing guys who have a cup of coffee with the Packers and then disappear into whatever other non-football pursuits they go on to play, do, whatever, or guys who start out with the Packers and end up elsewhere. That's interesting to me, but I get why it's not interesting to a lot of other people, so this is potentially good news there. It is potentially really bad news for guys on the bubble. That's being how it's being spun in some circles. I don't know if I'm entirely swayed by that idea. 
in theory, it's bad to have fewer reps. If you're a guy who's in roster spots or in contention for roster spots, say 49 through 53. But on the other hand, how many roster spots are tied up already? We did our roster projection right after the draft. And even before Lane Contract restructured his deal, it looked like there was 45, 46 roster spots all but guaranteed already. You'll just play the bubble guys a little bit more in these two games, and that'll be the end of it. The other 46 or so guys you know anyway, and you're going to be churning spots 46 through 53 anyhow, and you've got more flexibility with the practice squad, with new rules there. This is not really going to hurt anybody all that much. Maybe there's an outside shot that some guy was really going to come on in the fourth preseason game and turn out to be something later in his NFL career. But I can think of one guy who really made an impression like that. Vic Soto, remember him a few years back? And he really didn't make much of an impact in the NFL anyway. He stuck around until 2013, kicked around a couple different practice squads, ended up playing all of 14 career games. It just, it it's not a lot. There isn't anybody that you're going to really miss out on by only having two preseason games. So going from four to two kind of stinks if you like watching that. By and large, not going to be that big of a deal. I would be concerned if you're the sort who doesn't want the NFL schedule to expand any more than it already has, if this could be setting a bad precedent. I would say that's an outside shot, but it's not impossible. We also found out on Wednesday that the Packers aren't going to be doing anything training camp-wise at St. Norbert's this year. This is more of a symbolic partnership than anything at this point. Most of what happens training camp-wise is at Lambeau Field, at Ray Nischke Field, in, in the Don Hudson Center. Not that big of a deal. But it is also a really bad sign if you're looking to see stuff in person this year as far as training camp goes. I would not anticipate a lot of in-person viewing of training camp this year. I would be surprised at this point if you're going to have a lot of opportunities to do that, which is a huge, huge bummer. And I hope this isn't an opportunity for the NFL to just say, let's just make all this go away and close all training camps because that would just be enormously bad news. I don't think they'd be dumb enough to do that, but I've never really been disappointed in the past when I've tried to anticipate the NFL doing something stupid. Usually when you expect the NFL to do something dumb, they will go ahead and screw it up probably even worse than you anticipated. I would not go so far as to predict that would happen, but if you have a year without training camp, I'm just wary of, or training camp viewing, I'm just wary of setting any kind of precedent for the NFL. So that seems pretty doom and gloom. Let's talk about some good stuff. I uh, wrote a fun piece for Acme Packing Company about the best wins and worst losses the Packers have had to every NFC North team since the turn of the century. So 20 seasons now, what are the best wins and worst losses um, for each team in the NFC North? I talked about my personal favorite Packers win over the Vikings on the last episode when we were talking about worst or weirdest moments in Packers-Vikings history. I 
said their best win or my favorite win over the Vikings was uh, their final game in the Metrodome, the Packers' final game against the Vikings in the Metrodome in 2013, where the Packers rang up 44 points and basically tore down the Metrodome themselves. My personal favorite win over the Bears comes in week 17 of the 2013 season. And you really only need three words to describe it. He's got Cobb. And all you've got to do is imagine Larry McCarron screaming those words and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the game where Aaron Rodgers came back from the dead and defeated uh, the Chicago Bears with a late, late toss to Randall Cobb on fourth down. Mm, Just a satisfying win there. Then my favorite win over the Detroit Lions uh, comes in week 13 of the 2015 season. I think you could argue that the season-ending wins in 2016 or 2019 were just as important, no doubt. But this kept the Packers season alive and really was satisfying for me personally. Uh, this was this happened during the first week of December in 2015. It was a bit of a bummer there for me personally going on. Not not anything monumentally bad, but my wife and I were getting ready to move from Wisconsin to Indiana. I was leaving a job that I liked in a couple of days. The headache of, of just packing up to move and getting out of our lease at our apartment and all that stuff was a huge headache. And the Packers started out that game down 20 to nothing. They chip away a little bit in the third, but they're down 24 to 13 or 23 to 14, excuse me, in the fourth with just over seven minutes left. And then the comeback starts. And then Aaron Rodgers releases that pass from 60-some-odd yards away. And it just falls right down into Richard Rodgers' giant soft hands. And the Packers win. Hard to beat that. There's a lot of wins over the Lions, though. There's a good bunch to choose from. There's also, oddly, a bunch of really bad losses to the Lions, too. Did you know that since 2000, the Packers have only lost five games by 30 or more points. And the Lions, the Lions are responsible for two of those five. They lost 40-10 to 10 to the Lions on Thanksgiving in 2013. The other was a 31 to nothing shutout for the last game of the 2018 season. Strange but true facts. Let's talk about scheme just for a second. A couple weeks ago, I suggested the Packers should sign Everson Griffin. I still think that they should give him a look and and probably bring him on board. You can always use more edge rushers. He's been effective, and he can't be all that expensive. To a man, to a person, I don't know if all the critics were, were men, everyone who criticized that piece, and there weren't that many, most people just kind of said, meh, Virtually every single person who criticized that piece said, Everson Griffin, not a scheme fit. And that puzzled me a little bit because I think as much as we know about Mike Pettin as a defensive coordinator, we know this. He is not really tied to any one one scheme. And moreover, he says again and again and again that this is a sub-league, your base doesn't matter so much. I did not really have the exact accurate words to describe why I wasn't hung up on scheme or didn't have time or whatever, but my good friend Owen Reese passed along a piece that he wrote 
explaining why scheme differences aren't that big of a deal. I've linked the entire thing in your show notes, and you should check that out. But the rub of the piece is this. There's not that big of a difference between how the 4-3 defense is used in modern defenses and how the 3-4 is used. From the end of the piece, he writes this. And this piece is from 2018, but it hasn't really changed at all in substance since then. He wrote, Acme Packing Company's Peter Bukowski wrote a wonderful article about if the Packers switch to a 4-3 under defense full-time instead of the 3-4 they currently employ. My response, they're the same thing. The only actual differences outside of coverage between the two under fronts are the personnel used for the five technique spot and the Sam linebacker position. Green Bay, for instance, uses Dean Lowry as their starter at the five technique. Dean Lowry is six foot six and 296 pounds. Seattle uses Michael Bennett as their five technique. He is six foot four and 274 pounds. It's all about preference and what personnel matchups you want. Common thought is that 4-3 teams are faster and have more speed on the field, while 3-4 teams are bulkier and bigger. While that may or may not be true, that's a different story for another time. Don't get caught up in all the hoopla of the scheme name. Pay attention to the concepts. There are different, definitely different schools of thought and styles of play within the two, but their alignment are nearly identical and, for the most part, can use the same personnel. End quote. Again, the whole piece is worth sorting out, and it goes into a lot of different details on uh, gap fits, and responsibilities of different people along the defensive front. But the main point of the piece is this. Don't focus on what guys' positions are. Focus on what they do when they're on the field. And I think that's why the Packers should consider a guy like Everson Griffin. In situations where the Packers are using two down linemen on passing downs, he would be a a great fit. If you know that he's coming in just to rush rush the passer, you don't have to worry about him getting bullied or pushed around by somebody trying to run a power run sort of scheme at you. And even if you want to have him in, in your base, you just put him in a position where he can do what he does well. You can sort out the other stuff with different bodies on your defense shift guys around a little bit, give guys a little bit different responsibilities. It's more about creating matchups than the scheme themselves. And I think that's the real point of why I'm interested in a guy like Griffin or just another guy on the defensive front who can create difficult matchups for the opposing offense because that's really what it's all about. It's not about scheme or scheme fit or the plays you call. It's about creating difficult situations for the opposing offense. And I think Everson Griffin can create more difficult positions for the offense, create more problems for opposing offenses than a guy like Dean Lowry or Tyler Lancaster. You can agree on those grounds or disagree, but but that's what I think, and I think that's a good explanation of why that's an important thing to consider. Take your eye off the ball, chapter 16. This is the rare chapter in which Kerwin takes on one topic and just hammer it. And boy, does he hammer it. Rules, rules, rules. There are too many rules. Why are there so many rules? There are absolutely too many rules in the NFL rulebook. This game is almost impossible to officiate. If you've ever gotten conflicted or frustrated because there are conflicting rules or rules that appear to conflict, you've got good company in Pat Kerwin. And he is also, who knew, 
the standard bearer for something we talk about regularly on this podcast, the rules expert in NFL broadcast booths. Now, maybe the NFL loves them because they generate controversy, but I think it undermines the officials that are out on the field. If you've got your supposed rule expert up in the booth and he's asked to weigh in on a call and he disagrees with the call on the field, doesn't that just rile everybody up? And if he says the official got it wrong, doesn't that undermine what the official on the field is doing? Very frustrating to watch. The NFL rule book, though, is I think the very definition of that quote about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. No rule was ever put in as an attempt to make the game worse, but he had enough of them and that's exactly what you get. This pass interference review thing is a perfect example. You can see why the NFL wanted to have this change. There was a big screw-up on a really big stage. It affected a playoff game, and they wanted to make sure that never happened again. But it led to a situation where coaches were challenging the same rule week after week after week, and it was never getting changed. Officials were never overturning any calls that would have been affected by this rule. Why? Because the NFL wanted it there as, a, as only a break glass in case of emergency sort of option. That was abundantly clear. And so you just end up in a situation where NFL fans watching at home are wondering, hey, we put in this rule to fix bad calls, and now these bad calls are happening and they're not getting fixed. Why? And the NFL just doesn't have an answer, or they don't offer one. And that's a problem. The NFL is adding too many rules, and it's making the game worse. I really liked his example about basketball. Basketball is supposed to be a less physical game than football. But in a lot of basketball plays, you've got more physical contact going on than in certain parts of a of football play. The interactions between cornerbacks and receivers are often, usually even, less physical than most trips down the court in a basketball game. In basketball, you can redirect your opponent with your hands, body check them a little bit, push them around if you're if you're on offense within reason. In the NFL, you're not supposed to have your hands on anybody at all if you're running down the field. Why? The NFL is trying a little bit to manufacture some passing efficiency, but it just ends up creating a lot of gray area where flags may or may not get thrown. And that's frustrating for people at home. Make it more clear. Call fewer penalties. Have a better product on the field. There are a couple of rules that I would love to get changed right off the bat. If I was king of the NFL, I would change the rule right away about what jersey numbers people can wear. Sure, we're going to have some rules in there. Maybe you stop it at offensive line, but I think just about everybody else on the field should be able to wear whatever uniform number they want, especially on defense. Got a big defensive lineman who wants to wear like number four or something? Go ahead. Get weird. Reggie Bush tried to challenge this rule a little bit when he came into the NFL. Very token opposition. 
But it would have been cool to see him wearing number five for the New Orleans Saints. That would have been a lot of fun. I think it'd be fun to see a super fast, slick defensive back with all the, the gear that makes him look cool, wearing number one or something like that, then getting burned by some big lumbering tight end. See, that's a lot of fun. That adds a little bit of flavor to the game. There's no reason at this point in the NFL's evolution to have NFL rules about uh, uniform numbers be that specific. Second one I would change right away is is motion. I understand a little bit why they want to restrict motion, but the motion they've got in the CFL and now the dearly departed Arena Football League is a heck of a lot of fun. And if you want to get the game a little bit more spaced out, have fewer high-speed collisions, why not let guys run around a little bit more? Make it harder for defenses to get a bead on them. Just a thought. Secondly, thirdly, I would make it a rule or change the rule that allows you to punt from inside your opponent's 45-yard line. No punting inside the 45. Go for it on fourth down or kick a field goal. No cowardly punts. I know there's a whole ton of others, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about them. Let me know wherever you happen to find this show what rules you would change in the NFL. If you typically find this show on YouTube, and you have now been struggling to find it there and you've been listening elsewhere, there's a reason for that. Our podcast host, Acast, is having some issues with Google right now. They are not letting them post remotely to YouTube, which is a big headache for people like me. Acast, I'm paying you money. Why can't you get that figured out? But I'm told it's going to be fixed in the relatively near future. So if you typically find your episodes of Blue 58 via YouTube and you haven't been able to, I'm sorry. If you are finding this one now and haven't seen a couple there, that is why. If you don't listen on YouTube, that is an option that you have. Maybe you just like to sit at a desktop or laptop or whatever and listen to the show. You can listen there. And a lot of people seem to have found that it's a really easy place to to leave comments and interact with the show. So if that's something you want to do, check that out. I will let you know when it gets fixed. Until then, I'm going to be dropping a little bit of an apology into into every podcast where we talk about that or where we, well, where we have a show, just so people who normally listen on YouTube know what's going on. But in the meantime, that's all I've got on this episode. I really appreciate you listening in. I hope you have a wonderful 4th of July weekend, uh, especially our UK listeners. I don't want to be too hard on you, but... Uh, Happy 4th of July as well, I guess. If you were here, we could cook out and celebrate with some fireworks or whatever. But I guess we all we kicked you all out in, uh, in 1776. So uh, that's the breaks, I guess. Can't cook out with us on 4th of July. Hope you have a great weekend. If you like this show, go ahead and share it with somebody else. Um, who you think you might, who you think might benefit from it. That is the way that we grow the tent, help get more people involved in this conversation and ultimately help more people become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.